You're listening to the IBSI Views podcast. I'm Gaia Lamperti, and today we're joined by Peter Oste Christensen, Director at Capital Markets Technology and Consulting Firm, LPA. Hi, Gaia. Pleasure to have you on the show. How are you today? I'm fine, thanks. And you? I'm great. Thanks for asking. Brilliant. So today we're going to focus on the topic of CBDCs, where the market is headed, how close we are to uh, getting to that scenario when, when CBDCs will be widely adopted. Um, but before we dive in, Peter, would you like to introduce yourself and LPA in terms of what the company does and the value proposition? Yes, please. Long story short, I've been in the capital market for the better of 30 years. So I started back in the early 90s, basically been working both on the technology side, on the consulting side, as well as having different senior positions at, at different banks, uh, especially in, in, uh, in Europe. As for LPA, it's been around for almost as long, uh, so more than 20 years now. And it, the heritage is very special because it basically comes out of a structuring, a technology and product structuring point of view. So that means that most of my colleagues and I, we are actually also experienced when it, come down, it comes down to actually creating solutions for banking clients. So what kind of solutions would for instance, be the right way to go if you are an automotive supplier in the current market environment. That would actually be things that we would also be doing. Fast forward, if we're looking at uh, LPA today, we are a originally a German company, but we are basically since late 2018, we are expanding internationally both in the terms of uh, software and, and we're even buying additional software companies to it with sort of the major hubs being in Europe. So we have a large hub in here in Frankfurt, as well as in Zurich and in London. And I wouldn't be surprised if we would be adding some additional uh, continents to that picture. Fantastic. Sounds great. And I'm super glad to be discussing this topic with you because it sounds like you have both the banker's perspective because of your background in banking. And now you are closer maybe to the, the service provider point of view. So brilliant. My first question around CBDCs would be, what is the still untapped, I'd say, because obviously it's it's just pilots we're seeing at the moment, but what's their potential to truly revolutionize the banking model as we know it today? Uh, I think it's it's a very good uh, question, uh, Gaia, but before we go too much into it, we have to sort of structure the question a little bit. And I think it's very, very important to basically say that within the crypto space, we have three different value propositions from a business point of view. I'm not talking about technology right now, but just purely from a value proposition. We have the classic Bitcoin, the cryptocurrency, uh, where there is a, uh, actually a, quite a debate whether it actually has any worth to it or not. Uh, personally, I, I, I tend to follow the more puristic view of saying it has no uh, value. Then again, it's a fantastic vehicle for, for actually understanding the technology. It's driving the technology. I see it sort of as a, a bridge to the market to come. But the real showdown that we're going to see in the market is actually on the one side, the stable coins, and the other side, the central bank digital currencies. So why do we do that distinction? That is... If you look at the stablecoin, that would be the private market answer for a true digital currency. And when I say private market, it's basically 
we saw it already with Dime. I was was it Facebook and a couple of others who actually tried doing doing it, and we are seeing there. This is basically development that's happening outside of the realm of 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 the central banks. Very importantly here is that for this to fly and this to work, personally, I think we need some kind of asset-backed stablecoin. So please don't take something like the Terra Luna uh, thing that's going on uh, right now in the market as any sort of measurement for what a stablecoin is. For me, it's more a, a story about what not to do. But again, we will see that without making it too complex and going too much into it. If I have a digital currency of some kind, a stable coin, and it's backed by assets, that's actually just a mutual fund or an ETF. So what I will see there is we will have some kind of regulation, just as we have with uh, with funds in the sector here. But I think we will be able, or the market will be able to create some kind of stable coin that can be used in different transactions uh, and in different settings. But again, it's very much more like a fund. Now, moving over to the CBDC. First of all, the CB, the central bank part. So yes, it's fiat money. So it is something that the uh, central bank says, this has value. And really, if we look at that, we are actually seeing two different kinds or families of CDBCs being created in the different projects around. One is the purely domestic consumption only. And the other one is potentially an international tradable CDBC. I'll start with the domestic kind first, because if you look at it, it's supposed to work like cash, just cheaper. Why do I say that? Well, it's because if we look at the whole security chain, the whole logistics behind cash, cash is actually very expensive. You need security firms to fill up ATMs, to pick up the money from a shop, bring it back, counting it, cleaning it, et cetera, uh, and circling that again. And that's actually pretty expensive. So if we're seeing that and then looking at people are becoming more and more digital, it's only sort of a natural progression to say, well, can't I have sort of a bit like my, my, my cash just an electronic form. So that's a little bit more difficult to steal. I don't have the logistics hassle of it. And, and I, I basically remain relevant. I think a very good example of that kind of project is what they're doing in Sweden at the moment. They're looking at it. I think they have the culture in place also to embrace it and, and to, to accept such a thing. And I think we're going to see that. Again, it will be a longer process. But then here over the last couple of years, we've seen that even sort of diehard uh, rules and, and cultural barriers have actually been broken uh, rather easily. So I believe the domestic C uh, CDPCs will come and it will be practical. But again, if it's just sort of for small payments, you're paying a, a train ticket or you're buying a meal, we're not talking about sort of the high value, high volume transactions there, but we are seeing basically for, for, for the high volume transactions. Now we shift over and look at what we have, sort of a global CDBC. And there it's interesting to note that we already have projects going on. I think the MOF, the Ministry of Finance in Singapore, is actually very far progressed. And they've actually done the first sort of proof of concept transactions, i.e. exchanging one CDBC for another CDBC, basically done that. And I think these projects are worth looking at because they have the potential of actually revolutionizing sort of the global commercial payment system 
as we know it today. So the whole corresponding banking system, again, a very expensive system could actually benefit uh, from this kind. What we are seeing now is cases, isolated cases on the domestic side. We are seeing cases on the international side coming up. And now we're having sort of the second thing, that is who can actually hold the CDBCs? The domestic, easy. Uh, even the kids should be able to use it, right? Otherwise, it won't work. If we are looking at the uh, global side, there we can actually start seeing some of the discussions. So who will be the owners of this CDBC? Will it only be banks, so licensed institutes? Or could it actually be that we could come into a situation where everybody, at least those vetted by a bank, can hold this CDBC and use it for forever? Uh, what we have. And the thing is, if we can actually come to a situation where corporates, private individuals can actually own the real thing, the real CDBC, we've suddenly come to a point where we don't need deposit-taking banks anymore. Why? Because I don't need to have my cash with the bank in order to do my transactions. I have it in my wallet. So I don't need to lend the nice bank my money take the credit risk on that bank, I have the CDBC directly, which is a claim on the central bank. So if we come to that point in time, we are actually in a situation where we could really see a complete sort of disruption of the classical deposit banking model that we've seen for centuries, places like Europe uh, or the US and actually move to something new. And the interesting thing is, if you look at it, there are some arguments why it could go that way. One of them is that having a globally accepted currency is actually a fantastic tool for power projection in the world. So let's say, why isn't ruble used more places in the world to pay? Why is dollar in every state that has a problem with their currency? Why, why do you take dollars with you when you go backpacking somewhere uh, in a third world country? Because it's accepted no matter where you are. And at the same time, it's a projection of power. And the thing is that attribute of currency is a feature of currency. Countries like the US or regions like Europe or the UK wants to keep because it actually helps them fund the state deficit. Why? Because basically every bill printed by the central bank is a free loan to the central bank. So you could say this sovereignty, the minting gain or whatever you call it, is actually a very important thing in the fiscal policies and in the uh, in the ability to, to, to fund these states. My personal take on that is I see a fairly high probability that we will end up with a CDBC or a set of CDBCs that can be exchanged globally, solving the commercial part, but still it can basically be held by individual people. Of course, for uh, money laundering reasons, et cetera, the identity needs to be, be established. But if you could actually go into that, you would be able to create a completely new finance system. I know there was a lot in, in one. Uh, no, it was uh, a in great introduction with some brilliant points and a preview of a lot of the, the topics and the, the angles I want to pick up on. First of all, I think it's quite interesting how, as you, as you rightly framed, CBDCs, the central bank digital currencies, are a sort of like evolution or a way to centralize a system, the cryptocurrency system that's 
a decentralized one. So I think it was very relevant how you said eventually we could end up in this scenario where even individuals own CBDCs. And I think it's part of the nature of this decentralized nature of digital money. And if that scenario indeed happens, as you, as you mentioned, that Peter, banks could be in a very different position than the one they are today. Um, so what would that look like uh, if we look ahead and, and, you know, maybe tapping into your experience as a banker, how banks can prepare now what, what they can do to sort of like smoothen the transition or, or prevent it? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's something that's very, uh, first of all, I think, understand and engage with this te technology and, and try to understand the different scenarios that we will actually be able to see and might come and try to understand at least what you see as uh, inhibitors or, or accelerators to that. But of course, let's say if I'm in the Midlands in, in UK, I'm taking in deposits I'm basically going in uh, on the other side and doing uh, mortgage finance. So, so literally, what I'm, am I doing? I'm giving out loans with a, a duration of 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. And today, typically, if I'm a retail sort of de uh, deposit-taking bank, the cash, the money for that loan, is actually coming from my deposit base. So that means that as a bank, I need on the one side to stay relevant towards my deposit base. So that I'm not just providing payment services, but could actually be providing some more services. So, so it's, it's really about creating the, the right client experience for basically locking in that client for a little longer so that we can actually get the funding to fund the same client when they buy a house. So, so that on the one side, the other one is, of course, to, to, to look at ways of creating alternative sources of funding. You could say myself, I'm originally from Denmark and they, they have basically been tinkering with the system for the last 200 plus years where they've created a funding model which is security-based. So if you go out, take a mortgage in Denmark, it's basically the funding is coming from the capital market and it's basically bonds being issued. I know that you have similar structures in all of these countries where you could actually do securitization as well of these things. But these would be the kinds of alternatives to deposit-based funding that you, you could be looking at. And it's something that you have to take into account, not really the PL for the next five years, but 10 years. I don't know. Fair enough. And thank you for also putting it into a time frame. Because my next question would be: as I'm sure you know, the UK, I'm picking on this because you also chose the UK as an example, yeah. is actually speeding up the process to, to embrace and turn crypto into a more mainstream mindset, let's call it this way. And I'm sure you know a few weeks ago the UK government announced plans to turn the country into the new crypto hub of Europe. Many welcome this news with, with a lot of excitement and, and high hopes. Uh, how will this affect the pilots and the trials, the different projects linked to the adoption of CBDCs in the country and eventually at the European level? Personally, my first reaction was uh, they've been, been, been looking at what Singapore has been doing the last couple of years and saying we can do the same thing. Let's cut the irony of it. I think Given the, the situation and the unique position of the, uh, the London financial market seen in the world, you could actually say it makes sense because actually one of the things that are potentially disrupted first 
would be the whole corresponding banking, the whole sort of international trade and payments, uh, which of course is very, very closely interlinked with the uh, global FX markets. Let's face it, the city of FX in the world is London. So, so in that sense, it makes sense. It leverages on existing knowledge, existing relationships, existing names. Secondly, just to give you an idea of, I'm privately living in a country where digital banking is still something new. And I was doing a, a project in London, actually, just uh, prior to COVID. And I just realized it doesn't matter whether I'm in Stockholm, whether I'm in Copenhagen, or whether I'm in London, I never carry cash in my pocket. Everything runs by my smartphone. Uh, I figure out to, 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 uh, a way of, of basically straddling the different currencies. It works like a charm. In Germany, I never leave my house without uh, money in my pocket. So there is a cultural element to it. And I think the Brits have a, a, a very sensible way of adapting new technology. And I think it, it actually taps very well into that as well. Let's see. It's not, it's not going to be an easy home run because basically every currency, every city is trying to claim that at the moment. Yeah, it's a, it's a title that many cities in the world would like to, to win, to get their first um, but you were totally right, Peter. It, it doesn't only depend on government policies, but it's also a series of elements. Also, you know, consumer yeah. behaviors and attitudes and maybe the transport system accepting contactless rather than, than cash. Opening up the conversation to the rest of the world, um, looking beyond Europe, looking at emerging economies, many countries in these markets have jumped on the crypto opportunity. I think Nigeria and Vietnam are the countries where most crypto transactions happen. So it has been widely adopted, not only on the, on the trade markets level, but also in peer-to-peer in -peer transactions. So I was wondering when effectively this scenario might, might appear as more concrete and close and maybe involved a larger number of countries, what would be the benefits for emerging economies? And especially in the context of El Salvador, adopting Bitcoin, there's so many references we could make. What do you think would be the impact on a global level? Uh, first of all, El Salvador, um, I, I, th I think they have their own set of problems and I, I, I don't think you should, should try to, to, to mimic that one, even though I must say, uh, they tried also to build a short position, uh, which they failed, apparently. Uh, but never mind. As I said, I'm not really the the the, the Bitcoin person here. I, I I don't I see it as a as a good tool, as a proof of concept, but it's not going to be the thing going forward. Uh, looking at it, I think when we're looking at developing countries, uh, we have the problem of basically cash logistics. And to be very, very honest, cash logistics problem only compounds when we are talking about basically cash usage in developing countries. If that developing country is using a US dollar, you could say you have the problem that you have physical bills that you can exchange them a finite number of times. Then you have to have somewhere to cash it in. And that's at a discount. I don't know whether the discount is 5%, 10%, or 20%, but it's in that order of magnitude. So you could say just having an economy that is physically cash-based, you have a toll on that, uh, or basically an inefficiency on that, uh, which is huge. So that, that means just, just purely from an efficiency point of view, uh, a crypto-based system combined and, and where you could say your identity is basically 
validated also, you will have a far stronger system in place. It will be cheaper, but the interesting thing is it will actually add trust to the system, which means that uh, often we see certain transactions they just doesn't happen because lack of trust. And I actually think that using these technologies in the right way can be very, very interesting for, for economies like Nigeria, like Vietnam, etc. Definitely. Thank you. Absolutely. And on this note, and to conclude, I would love to ask you, what, what do you expect in terms of also policymaking and the regulatory framework in the next few years? As you said, probably we're looking more at a 10-year period, but what can we expect? What will be the first sectors um, helping the, the development and the adoption of stable coins as well as CBDCs? Yeah. I, I think, first of all, we will have a neck-on-neck race with the stable coins. Because if public sector doesn't deliver, the private sector will. So let's just take the um, uh, let's just take the EU roadmap. They're basically stating in four years' time we have a Euro CDBC of some kind. They are very deep. Uh, they are even doing proof of concept uh, transactions uh, as we're speaking. So that would be the time frame that I would be looking at is this three to perhaps six years time frame. And you could say the thing is that if I look at it, and now I'm just going to pick a little bit on, on the EU, because it shows the politics behind it. That is, in the same paper where they were discussing and basically presenting the CDBC, they came up with a figure, I can't remember the figure, but just order of a magnitude, 60 to 70% of all retail payments within Europe is done by non-European corporations. So the MasterCards, the Visas, etc. And you being from Italy, you know what that codifies to. It means that it could actually be that they're even, from a political point of view, within the EU, a wish for disruption in order to sort of break the or sort of redistribute the market power of uh, vendors or, or service providers like Visa and MasterCard. So it, it's actually very interesting to see that in the political level, even there, we are seeing an interest in disruption. Uh, and that sort of tells me that this could actually happen a little bit faster than, than all of us think. Fascinating. Thank you very much. Peter Hoste Christensen, Director at Capital Markets Technology Firm, LPA. Thanks, Gaia. It was a pleasure.